0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to SACPA. Just to remind you, the session is being recorded. I'll just ask everyone to turn off their cell phones as well. It can be hard to remember. Yeah, thank you. Um, lunch is eleven dollars, in case you don't know. And there's baskets on the table, and someone can collect them afterwards. My name is Danika Jorgensen, and I'm very happy to be here today moderating. Um, if you don't have a membership already, memberships are wonderful. SACPA is nonprofit and relies on things like memberships and donations. And I believe you can see Annalise if you don't have a membership, just over there. Um, we'd like to thank the U L and Country Kitchen Catering for the fabulous meal today, as well as Shaw TV, CKXU 88.3, and the Lethbridge Herald for all of their help. Um, just to give you an outline of the meeting in case you haven't been here before, we have about 25 or 30 minutes when our speaker is going to present. Afterwards, we're going to have some lunch and then a question period afterwards, so we should wrap up at about one30 Um, It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who I'm very excited to hear. We have Suzanne Dorich here, and she is the Executive Director of the Ottawa-based organization City for All Women Initiative, since its founding in 2004. It is a unique collaborative of women from diverse communities, organizations, and academia working with municipal decision-makers to create a more inclusive city and promote gender equality. In that capacity, she coordinated a coalition of community leaders from diverse backgrounds to develop an equity and inclusion lens for the city of Ottawa. She has a master's in adult education, has designed and facilitated workshops on social issues for community organizations, institutions, and governments locally, nationally, and internationally. As an organization committed to diversity, Cowie has trained and coached women from a diversity of backgrounds to have skills for bringing their views forward to decision-makers, and for facilitating learning opportunities in the community that encourage health and quality of life for everyone. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ms. Dowage.
0: I am so happy that the words of introduction fitted what I'm actually going to say. You know, you kind of wonder, you know, when you get introduced, are they going to describe you as something that's very different than what you're going to talk about? So... That was great. Thanks so much. You know, t- talking with people when I first came in, uh, Kathy and Van and others here, about the fact that this group's been meeting for forty-seven years. This has been happening. You know how? Yeah. As, I mean, you all must think and know well, how incredibly phenomenal that is, and it is something that I think in other places around the country we could we could learn from. You know. So, so I'm 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 taking pointers here as I'm here today. And I was saying to Annalise Vanner, my, my good friend, who uh, is in part uh, responsible for me being here uh, in Ottawa, where, where initially it was to come and speak at the C-Mard, uh conference that will take place tonight, the Coalition of Municipalities Against Racial Discrimination, and, and the conference that they're holding uh, tonight and tomorrow Um, and also Jeff Kaufman with City Council, who who had encouraged me to come to give a uh, workshop yesterday with Council on Equity and Inclusion, and also to senior management. So, one, to thank them for bringing me here, and to come back to the mention of Annalise, my dear friend here, I was just saying to her, you know what? This thing of meeting every Thursday for many years, this rings a bell. What is that bell? What's that bell that rings? And I thought, of course, every Thursday, not for 47 years, but for six years, there were a group of us who held a vigil at the Human Rights Monument in Ottawa. It was during the years in the 90s when there were cutbacks to social programs. And, and, and so it was an ecumenical vigil that we held every Thursday where we would stand in silence Um, and rain, sleet, snow, whatever, we were there every Thursday. So it it warms my heart to think that as we were out there every Thursday, you were in here having conversations about social policy and what matters to you, and to know that we were there doing that and you were here doing this. And I was just thinking, gosh, if we would thought to go inside, maybe we could have done it for 47 years, you know? (laughs) But anyway, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, So I... um, I um, City for All Women Initiative, or Cowie as we're called, um, grew out of an of an awareness internationally um, that of women's right to the city. So, my apologies here for people who are are not from the city. You know, who are from the r- rural area. You know, I was joking yesterday. I can't say that word right because I'm from Southern Illinois, originally, and in Southern Illinois. You, I grew up in the rural area, and on Saturday nights we go and climb the fire tower and have a good time. And so I can't say rural right. And I get in trouble in Ottawa all the time because 90% of Ottawa is rural, as you may know. When they amalgamate it, it's a large part is non-urban. And so part of what we look at is what is the experience of people, rural residents of Ottawa. And I can't say it, so you'll just have to bear with me. But I, but I am going to focus somewhat about cities because that is the, the, the work that, that we're engaged with. And, and you can consider to what extent what I have to share is relevant for for where you live, whether it's in uh, Lethbridge or out of Lethbridge, um, because that's the experience I can speak from. And I can tell you that COWIE began, as I said, in an organization that was looking at a whole national movement about the right to cities for everyone to have a right to the cities. Who, who's not included in cities? Who gets left out when you do city planning? And then specifically international women coming and saying women have a right to the cities too. A lot of that coming out of countries like, like India where just even issues like public toilets or being able to safely ride transit or being able to negotiate your way around a city are, are major issues for women. Um, but also in the more developed countries and in Europe and in North America, looking at the ways in which women experience cities differently than men, traditionally in part because of women having specific concerns around safety, but also because of the roles that we've traditionally played which are in change and are all the time changing, but still having in a world in which for the most part women still have more responsibility around caring for for children or caring for their uh, elderly parents, and so are more likely to be engaging with different social services and negotiating the cities in different ways. And at the same time, cities having been designed and developed, not necessarily taking those differences into account. So, so what does that mean? So that was one of the things that, that this group grew out of. But when we started to look at that in Ottawa, the first thing we had to also ask ourselves was which women? Is my experience, how does my experience as a white Canadian, not Canadian-born, oh my gosh, white U.S.-born immigrant, but an immigrant from the United States who speaks English and middle class, what does, how is my experience different of the city than a First Nations woman? Um, what's, how, does our, how do we experience our life in the city differently? And how can that in turn inform social policy? Um. You know, we also realize that cities are increasingly important places. You know, more and more around the world, people are living in cities. And more and more decisions that affect our daily lives are being made by cities. And at the same time, and it's in a world in which there's less and less money for cities. Globally, infrastructure problems, uh, problems with not enough money to maintain the social programs, and, and increasing diversity within cities. As, as, as more people move together so that the needs within cities and the opportunities within cities. So this grew out of that two things. One, women's right to the city as part of everyone's right to the city. And also what an important space cities are in terms of an informing social policy. So as we began to ask which women, um, just as we'd say which men, and what is what are different women's experiences, what are different men's experience in the city. One of the things is to begin to look at the city from a broader perspective, and one of the things is the beginning to look at the ways in which I negotiate my life in the city. How do I move around in the city? And who do I interact with? And who do I begin to see things different? Who, and and realizing, and it was interesting, we were at a, a, a meeting last night of Seamart and there was a woman there, Tiffany Mueller, who was a professor before at Lethbridge and has now uh, gone to uh, Vancouver, but she had done some studies here, and she came back to, to reflect on that. And one of the things she was pointing out was she was showing pictures of different cities, and she was pointing out, you know, the fact that Lethbridge tends to be a very car city. And few people are using pub fewer people using public transit, and that when, you, when you're using your car, you're more likely to go from your home to your work, or from your home, to your school or from your home the doctor, and your life doesn't necessarily bump up against people maybe who are different from you in as many ways as it might if you're if you're on a bus where everybody's all thrown in together on that bus. So so where are the places that we in our lives, and you in Lethbridge and me in my life in Ottawa, where is it that I bump into people who are different from me? And to what extent when I do, am I really uh, this idea, of, as I think the publicity talked about, Tolerance. To what extent am I tolerating, or to what extent am I moving beyond tolerance? And I'll give you an example, and that is that, that I know for myself, I'm always in a hurry, and as Annalise will tell you, I'm often running late, so I'm, i i got to go, you know, and I can't stand lines. I can't stand lines in grocery stores, eh? Oh my gosh, you know, I try to look at the magazines, but I'm so impatient, you know? But instead, lots of times, how much am I tolerating... Mm. The the, the the person in the line who's who has a, a, a is language, English English a second language so they're not quite understanding as the cashier and they are interacting about how they're supposed to do their interact and I'm like gotta go gotta go or or the senior before me who's pushing the card in but I'm getting I'm trying to really say okay take my time it's okay you know I'll I'm going to move slower as I age too you know but instead I'm kind of anxious you know or the person with a disability working their way through a through a doorway, or the homeless person I pass on the streets, the ways in which I'm basically, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm tolerating. How do I move beyond that toleration to really understand where's that person coming from, and how, how can they, in fact, what can they teach me in my daily life? One is slow down, you know, <laughs> but the other is, well, how can they teach me, and what can they teach what it means to have good cities, what it means to have good social policy, what it means to have democracy. What is it they have to teach me? What is it they have to teach our city, our community? So, so it was with that kind of idea. Because lots of times, you know, people, we will see people as uh, users of services. But not see them as people who can inform the services. Who are in fact the people if they, who are using the services who know it the very best. But too often, those who are the greatest users of services are the people who are the most marginalized in the community, whether it be people in poverty or First Nations people or or racialized communities or recent immigrants or the, the Bhutanese refugees, say you have, new to your community, that indeed, because they're using those services and they rely upon it, they can be some of the best informers. So, you know, and I must say, too, that I was, um, you know... How do we do that? And how do, indeed, um, people like myself, and you could think about yourself, who are in more privileged places, economically, um, you know, age-wise, in so many ways, I've got a whole set of privileges. How can I I use those in a way that moves beyond charity? You know, my charity's great, but how can I use that in a way that helps to enable the voices to be amplified? of people in the community who are least likely to be heard. And, and, you know, I was very impressed, I must say, what I've seen by the, the fact that you meet every Thursday is phenomenal, have these conversations, that CMARD, at their meeting last night and their plan for their conference, I'm very impressed by what they're doing here, and the work that Jeff Kaufman and the others, are the conversations yesterday with city council and senior management about their real genuine interest of how do we move toward greater inclusion in the way we manage our city but I also know from my own experience in working with the city of Ottawa very closely, in which we develop this equity and inclusion lens and work with the city to do training, that the only way that can work is when the community and the city work together. And and the only way that can happen is when those of we each draw from our own capacity to make our voices heard and use our opportunities to do that, believe in the value of every voice here in this room, Uh, And at the same time, ask who's not being heard? And how can I use what I know, what my experience is, to help those voices to come forward? So how did we do this in Cowie, or City for All Women initiative? Um, We began in 2004 by providing training for women from diversity of communities. Um, women with disabilities, women living in poverty, Francophone women, actually, because that's a a marginalized group in in Ottawa, Um, and um, women, uh, uh, immigrant women, racialized women, uh, to be able to come, young women, First Nations women, Inuit women, to be able to know, well, how does city government work? Because they weren't very often going into City Hall, and they weren't very often bringing their views forward, and And they and there was a real insecurity in how do I do that, and to provide the support in how in helping them to learn how they could do that, we also formed teams, so we' a lot of work we've done over recent years is lowing women in low income neighborhoods forming teams and them being supported in turn by what we have community health centers. We have fourteen in our city, and they in turn support those women as we provide the training for them to be able to articulate what, what, you know, dream, what what is your neighborhood, what's your housing, your social housing unit, what's it like now? Draw a picture of it. Draw a picture of what you'd like for it to be. And then let's take a look at what it would take to get there and how can you raise those issues with city government to bring that forward. So doing that kind of work with women. And the other thing that we did uh, was I'm wearing this peach scarf today is that we started wearing these, what we call peach scarves. So that whenever we go to city council, women wear these. And whenever a woman comes and supports another woman, she gets one. and She takes it home. So that whenever a woman goes forward, and we usually try to have women go in pairs together and support each other, often bilingually, often maybe one woman's First Nations, another woman is is a single mom, new immigrant, so that they bring these different voices and they bring their lived experience to the microphone, to the committee, to bring that before council, they'll wear these peach scarves. And, it's a, and And they only may be one or two women at the microphone, but then we'll have women sitting in the gallery also wearing peach scarves. And that way council knows that these two women are not alone. That they feel that sense of support and they feel that, when women get this, they feel that sense of pride and dignity and power, and I matter. And it's really quite beautiful, because for a lot of the women we work with, there haven't been a lot of people in their life to say, your views matter. And so they'll wear these, and you'll often see them around town wearing them, you know, uh, because they, cause they go out, all these different women, you know, and, and they'll wear them. Um, and, but it's also now, is so that now, we, if there's something coming up at council and we don't have the energy or the capacity to have someone come and speak... We'll have one woman sitting in that gallery wearing a peach scarf, make sure she's visible and counsel one woman that we're there just by seeing a peach scarf. So, so it's that kind of work around empowerment in the community that and you're not alone. Just give you, just give you two examples, two social, social, and all of these examples. One is social, social housing. We've got housing and the standard, uh, and and a continual frustration. And the city doesn't have enough dollars. And there's this this whole culture around not raising taxes. The councilors are so afraid to raise taxes. You know, people don't realize that taxes pay for those very services that we use every day. So there's such a, a atmosphere of it's not okay to raise taxes. So with that, the city gets kind of stuck. Not enough money from the feds, not enough money from the province to, to really build up the social housing stock. So, so it's always a bit of a struggle. Well, in the last municipal election, um, we, we were working with women from neighborhoods and had them again using drawings, using stories, using all kinds of things, articulate what are the issues that matter the most to you in this election? And, and one of the and and housing, social housing emerged right to the top. And, and, um, and one of the things we did, for example, was we had a spoken word workshop where everybody uh, got to create words around what it is that they wanted around housing and then put that into a poem, a collective poem, and then took that poem and presented it in video form and then sent it to all the candidates so that their voices got out to all the candidates in a kind of a creative way. But, but it, that, wasn't, that, that in itself wouldn't have done it. Because stories alone are powerful, but it also needed to know what's the policy, where's the political space where it's possible to make this move anywhere, given the fact that cities are so underfunded. And one of the things was we brought together a table of of people from from different community organizations, people working on homelessness and housing issues, talked to people we know in the city, met with counselors who were sensitive to the issue, and were able to identify that indeed we knew that there was some download money coming from the provinces. So if we could manage to get that download money to be allocated for housing, it was money that could be used in different ways. If we were able to get enough momentum going to say that, then just maybe we could get that. And so in all this conversation, we settled on $14 million. And through working with the women's stories, the women going out and engaging their communities, but also not those women alone, those people who had much more privilege because they were, say, leaders of organizations, they were community groups, they were social policy people, they were academics who also had the arguments and the, the information Working together, what we call the table of convergence, where you have people come to the table, but that means everybody doesn't have to agree to the same thing, but maybe we agree on one thing, and that's let's see if we can get that $14 million in housing. So, through all of that effort, the mayor put it on his, uh, the candidate put it, mayor as candidate put it on his platform. We got other candidates to support it, and indeed, he got elected and it became a reality. So, for the last four years, we've had this win. So what that meant for the women who were then able to go back to their communities and say, look what we did. Look the difference we made. And then to have those women also follow up afterwards, and they couldn't do it on their own. Again, that's that support, support of the different community groups who were supporting them, to go forward when something's coming up at council and you think, hmm, they're starting to dwindle where that money's starting to spread that money too thin. It's going to lose a focus. We had women, I'm remembering a particular day where we had Connie Shingoose, who is a First Nations residential school survivor, struggles with drug abuse, used to work in the high tech industry and then just had to, you know, kind of managed to cram her whole history behind her of homelessness and abuse and put it all behind her and was you know a professional, and then all of a sudden it all came crashing down, You know all that memory stuff came floating out, and she finds herself in her life very much on the edge of homelessness and dealing with drug abuse. And for her to get involved in our program, to put on that peach scarf and to go before council and say, you know, social housing matters. And to me as a First Nations woman, this is why it matters. Or she was joined that day also with, um, with Charity, who is a woman from Rwanda, who is a single mom with two kids and she lives with real struggles because she lost one of her kids back in Rwanda and she lives with this incredible guilt and that's caused her all kinds of issues for her to go in together but the deal was that day her son four-year-old there was nobody to take care of him so he came in with her and so they're up there speaking and and then he's really cute he tugs on his mom's shoulder and he says mom mom I want to talk mom I want to talk. I want to talk. You know, she's saying, shh, 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 sh. says, I want to talk. I want to talk. Finally, she says, okay. So all the counselors waiting. He goes at the microphone. He goes, do you have housing for me? And it touched all their hearts. And I got to tell you, that little boy had such an impact. You could just see the counselors at the table melting. And indeed, they passed the, the motion that they were bringing forward, the recommendation. They took that up as a motion. So so and then and then so you see the difference in those women's lives but then you see how it then begins to fold out 3 years later 4 years later we're getting ready for another municipal election so now what surfaces to the top again social housing number 1 issue 14 million is just a drop in the bucket but the difference is this time they've got to win this time these women are able to go back to their neighborhoods and say you know what maybe there is a chance because four years ago they listened and they took that 14 million. So let's ask again. And then let's ask also about bus fares and let's ask also about food security and let's see where we can go. So that's where they're at right now because they've had that experience of a win. I'll give you one other example. Transit. Um, I was sharing this story yesterday. Um, as I said, and that's a whole other story, we worked with a coalition of groups for several years to develop what's called this equity and inclusion lens, which helps the city to think about the diversity of residents when you do planning. So that you're you're thinking about everybody. You know? Seniors, youth, immigrants, people with disabilities, uh, people in poverty, rural, rural, rural residents. You should think about all of them when you do that. And, um, and so... So in our city, again, limited budgets, word goes out, we're gonna optimize our bus routes. Sometimes when you're doing social policy, you gotta unwrap un- unpack it and say, optimize our bus routes. What that sounds good. That sounds good, we're in, you know? But you no. Know, what it meant was that they were gonna cut bus routes, increase waiting times, increase number of transfers, and we and, and the community was outraged. People were coming forward in droves people were going to consultations we held a consultation for women we had many women going to consultations and the whole community the disability community said wait a minute this is going to make it even harder for us to navigate across the city seniors people getting trying to get to their church or their mosque saying you're going to cut access to my church on a on a sunday how are we going to get to the mosque how are we going to get so the whole community was was up and we thought surely they're not going to do this Everybody's so clearly saying this is going to be a problem. And if you can't get to the services, what good are the services? And, but, no. Can't raise ta- when There's no money, and you can't raise taxes. There's such a fear of taxes, you know. When, indeed, again, taxes are what? Fund social services. So I, I don't quite get it. There's such a fear of, of taxes. So, So... And so counselors are afraid to raise those taxes, even though we really need the money for the social services. And we know it's much more expensive when you pay for it out of your pocket and you pay it to a private provider than if it's a a social service. But the fear of taxes. So they said, no, we have to cut. We don't have the money. We've got to save these millions of dollars. So they did. They cut routes. They, 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 They increased wait times. They did all of this. But I'll tell you that what happened on the day when it was clear... There was a meeting of our Transit Commission. All these groups, disability community, seniors, mothers with their strollers, all these different people coming forward and saying, you can't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We saw it was happening. We saw talking behind the scenes it was going to happen no matter what. So we thought, okay, let's have a backup strategy. Because one of our things is let's make sure we can have a win. Because for people who are from marginalized communities, you're so used to never having a win. Why bother? Who's going to listen to me anyway? That if we go forward, we try to go forward on something that there's maybe going to be a win. So we said, so we're asking you not to do this. But if you do this, it's really clear to us you have not applied the equity and inclusion lens and you made these decisions. And so we want you to do a study and come back six months from now and see what's been the impact on specific populations. Luckily, we got counselor support. It passed, and they were to do this. So they did. They did the study. took them a year, but a year later, indeed, it proved just what we all knew. Women were more concerned about safety. Immigrants were finding it harder to get to jobs. People with disabilities, seniors, people with health issues were finding it harder to get to health facilities. People had a string of things where specific populations were facing extra challenges because of the bus cuts. So they came back a year later, reported back to council, almost embarrassed, well indeed embarrassed, because we also had a change in management, and the new management had a new perspective. And they said, we made a mistake. It was not optimization. We we were wrong to use that word. It was cuts. And indeed, recognized the, the problem with the changes. And so and the good news is, is they said, um, they said, "Now we're going to pass a policy, which they did in ROC Transpo, that everything we do from here on in, from bus pr- bus procurement to training, everything we do all the way through, we're going to we're going to look at equity and inclusion." So now they're getting training, and they're very committed to it. So there's a lot of pain. We've got a few buses back on the road. They're making some changes. Safe stops. You feel unsafe between a stop? You can pull the thing to be able to to. Uh, the cord, to be able to get them to stop between stops. They're doing some things that don't always, uh, you know, that they can within the budget, but also uh, moving forward. So the story there for you is, but I want to tell you also, it's not only about the social policy, and I'll give you, uh, and I know my time's wrapping up here, so I just want to give you a couple examples within that. Again, the women. Who went forward to present that deputation? Uriah, who's a Muslim woman, single mom, actually was fleeing abuse from her husband, and it was scary for her because she tries to hide where she lives. But she decided to take a risk because she was upset because her kids couldn't get to, couldn't get to the re- rehab center they needed to get to. So she decided to go. Linda, who lives with uh, fibromyalgia and other disabilities and has a partner with disabilities, the two of them went forward and presented that deputation. And they were so proud of themselves. And a year later, when the study came back, they were in the audience. And they knew that they were the ones who were responsible for having this now happening. So they have that pride and they take back their communities. So I guess when all of this it's about the social policy, but I want to say that it's about who's not part of shaping social policy, who could inform and give insights that maybe aren't being heard. And I want to just tell you one more person and that's a woman by the name of Christine. Christine is a woman who has lived with disabilities all her life. She has an arm that's hand is such that she can hardly use it. She doesn't have all of her fingers and her, her hand doesn't work very well. And she and she also um, lives with lupus and so has really hot low energy levels. And when she first got involved with Cowie about six, seven years ago, she she was angry. She was angry at the world. She came to the training. She was mad. She was unpleasant to be with. She was grouchy. She was, she'd bite at people. You know, she'd said, I'll never use a computer. She hardly spoke English. She's a francophone, unilingual francophone, lived in Ottawa her whole life and couldn't speak hardly any English and was just mad. Well, I'm telling you, seven years ago, she's a whole other person. She, she is now our expert on transit. She's on that computer every day checking what's going on I was talking to her the other day. We're working on putting together a messaging on the election. I said, you know, we got to figure out if we want to not to raise bus fares. What are we going to do? And she said, I called the person who's head of the committee, and I said, give us, me all the hysterical documents on all the precedents that were set in the past. I said, you what? I, you know, she said, I called him up. And she said, and I got it. So she was, she's got that courage to go forward. So right here, just show you, do you see this scarf? But you also see this necklace and these earrings? She makes these because she is so grateful about the change in her life and she's given one to all the women city counselors. And at first she was just going to give them all as a gift one International Women's Day and then she said, no, I'm going to wait till they earn it. (laughs) So what she does is when a woman counselor comes forward on an issue that she thinks and we think is something that's really important in terms of promoting inclusion in the city, she awards them with this with this necklace. So if you look in there with the light you'll see her shining in there and all the other women. So thank you.